0: Good evening. I am Deb Haygood, part of the teaching team, and I uh, I love that. Love the summer study, women in the Word. It's just so neat because we're we can be relaxed and easy going, and it's light outside, isn't that fun? Great snacks. We can drink iced coffee. Um, it's fun. It just makes me happy to be here with you, to be here with women studying God's Word. And we're talking about women. So it doesn't get any better than that because as women, we're interested in other women. I personally like to keep up with Kate Middleton, um, Princess Kate. <laughs> or maybe she's Duchess Kate, but you know, she's got that little Princess Charlotte. She's cute. As women, we're interested in women. And God loves women. He made us in his image. Man and woman, he made in his image. Now, he made us different from men. Um, Genesis tells us that he took the dust from the ground to make Adam, but for Eve, he took a rib out of Adam and then fashioned her into a woman. Women are important to God, and they are important to God's kingdom, and we see women all through Scripture, and those that walk with the Lord do some amazing things, and so this summer we are looking at five real women from the New Testament, real women, and we want to look and see how their relationship with Jesus, good, bad, and beautiful, affects the way that they live their life the difference that it makes in their actions and their attitude. And then we want to leave each week with an example or an encouragement from them for our own relationship with Jesus and our own walk with him. Last week, Lynn told us about Elizabeth. She's a great lady. She was a faithful, um, believing person. Gal that uh, loved the Lord, He was her abundance, and when she had a son in her old age, she was um, grateful. And then she finds out that he, her son, will be the forerunner to the Messiah. The Messiah is coming, and she is filled with joy. It was a great lesson. Tonight we're looking at Anna. And Anna, to me, is one of those amazing women in the New Testament. Um, I'm just crazy about her, and I think you're going to be crazy about her, too, by the end of tonight. And there's so much that we can learn about Anna, about her life and her attitude and her actions. And the cool thing is we learn it all in just three verses. There's only three verses in the whole Bible about Anna. But Luke does a great job painting a complete picture of Anna's character. Now Luke is the author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician and a historian. Okay, so now let me say and remind you that this is God's Word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God inspired each writer with his words to put down but he used their individual personalities and writing styles as they penned his words. And so Luke, as a doctor, he was a man of science. And so he considered the facts very carefully. And as a historian, he uh, was meticulous in his research. He cared about details. They were important. And so he was interested in interviewing reliable witnesses, lots of times Primary sources, as journalists say. First person um, witnesses to that. Because Luke was most interested in writing the truth about Jesus. Jesus, the one who calls himself the way and the truth and the life. And so most probably it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who told Luke this true story about Anna. Now, the title on your outline um, tonight is Anna, a Widow Who Waited on the Lord. And at the end of tonight, you might each one have a different title for this. It will depend on what you see as the most important aspects in her life as we read and study about her this evening. But for me, I saw a woman who waited on the Lord. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, on your outline at the very top there, I have Isaiah forty thirty one. Let me read it. It says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is how I saw Anna as I read these three verses in Luke. So the word wait uh, means to expect to look patiently. And it can have the connotation of hope. And that's not just a wishful thinking hope, but that is a for sure knowing hope. And it comes from the Hebrew root that means to bind together or wrap around. And I think that is a great picture, a great visual of thinking of Anna wrapped around the Lord. Wrapped around the Lord. Now, um, when I picture that, it kind of makes me think of the mom walking down the hallway with the child, you know, uh, on her leg, and she's doing this down. And whenever I see, how many of you in here have had that experience, or you've seen, probably every single one of you? Yeah. Um, When I see that, I always think of my son, Ben. Now, he's grown, and he has daughters of his own, but um, when he was a toddler, he loved his mom, and he did not want to leave me, And so it was always hard to go into the church nursery or Mother's Day out and he would grab hold of my leg and, you know, you get the picture and I'm going down the hall with him wrapped around my leg. That's the picture I see of Anna, wrapped around the Lord. But God doesn't get irritated at that. He's not frustrated with that. He loves it when we wrap ourselves around him. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 verse 36 and begin reading about Anna. It says, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Let's stop right there. So we read that Anna was a prophetess. Now, this is a very exceptional, privileged title. And by the way, Anna um, her means that, well, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Hannah, and that means grace or favor. And lots of times we say that God's grace in our lives is um, undeserved favor from God in our lives. And so we see the grace here. It also can mean beautiful. And I think that's interesting because the tribe of Asher is pretty insignificant. You don't see much about it in scripture. And so the one quote that I read about the tribe of Asher says this, The tribe um, of Asher alone is celebrated in tradition for the beauty of its women and their fitness to be wedded to high priest or king. So I think it's very possible that Anna may have been a beautiful woman. Now, Luke probably includes her father, Phanuel, we don't know anything about him, and this tribe, Asher, so that we know she is definitely Jewish. She is Jewish. The Israelites were made up of the 12 tribes. And you remember the stories in Exodus and um, Genesis that Abraham's grandson was Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And those sons and their families and their descendants became the nation Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Asher was one of Jacob's sons, and Anna was from the tribe of Asher. Now, last week, Lynn told us Elizabeth and Zechariah were from the tribe of Levi. So we, we see this um, in the Old Testament. So she's from the tribe of Asher, and she is a prophetess. So what is a prophetess? Well, it is a female prophet, and there are not too many of them mentioned in Scripture. We have Miriam in the Old Testament. She was the sister of Moses. And then we have Deborah in the Old Testament. She was the great judge that we see in the book of Judges. And then here, as the New Testament opens up, is Anna, and she is called a prophetess. It's a female prophet, and there were not too many in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, and a prophet is one who speaks God's words to the people. He speaks God's words to the people, and they were chosen by God. So here we see God's grace on Anna. God um, called them directly, and then he placed his Holy Spirit on them. Now, let me just say one thing there so we're not confused. Today, when we believe in Jesus, immediately we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened with Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. And he told us that was going to happen. He told the disciples, when I go away, I'm going to send you the counselor. And then that's what we see in Acts. We see it Pentecost. And through Acts, when the people would believe in Jesus, they would be filled with the Spirit. But not so before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then God placed his Holy Spirit on certain individuals. Prophets had the Holy Spirit, and they gave God's message. And we often think that that message is one of foretelling future events. And that's part of it. But more often than not, they were um, telling people God's Uh, words of judgment and repentance. They were saying, come back to God. Come back to God. He loves you. He wants you to follow him. And they were giving them uh, words from God that talked about his character and who he is, words of encouragement. God is good, and he's loving, and he cares for you. Trust him. Follow him. And experience his blessing. God wants to bless you. And then there's also um, many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Many words about the coming Messiah to Israel. And I have two of those. There's many, but I just put two on your verse sheet. First one is Jeremiah 23. So the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer that was going to be sent would be divine. And he would also be from the line of David, the tribe of Judah. And then Micah 5.2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so here we read that the um, Savior would be born in Bethlehem. There's many more, and Anna would have known them all because Anna would have known God's words as a prophetess. She would know the scriptures. The Old Testament, we call it, that's all they had, the law and the prophets, um, as they said. The law, those were the books written by Moses. Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we have all those prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the little prophets, Micah and Zephaniah and Haggai. All of those would have been prophets um, speaking God's words. Anna would have known those scriptures. She would have listened in the temple as they unrolled the scrolls and read God's word. Anna believed God's word, and she believed these prophecies of the Messiah. She believed that he would come. And so I think she told others the word of God and she also encouraged them with God's word. Anna was looking expectantly for the Messiah. She had a for sure hope that God would send him as she waited on the Lord. So, what does knowing God's word do for us today? Many things, but one thing is it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Hope for today and hope for the future. We know um, his word and and we believe that God is in control, that he has a plan and a future for each of us, a plan to bless us individually. Now, we live in a time when Jesus, the Messiah, has come to earth the first time, but he told us that he was coming back. He said, told the disciples in John 14, 3, so I just put that on your verse sheet as well. It's a great verse. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's coming back, and so we wait, wrapped around the Lord, waiting for it to see Jesus, either when he comes back to earth or when we go to be with him in glory. Knowing God's word gives us hope. We do not despair. We believe the best is yet to come, just like Anna. Anna believed the best was yet to come, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. So let's keep reading. Let's finish reading verse um, 36 and then some of 37 here. It says, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple. Okay, so we see here that Anna was an elderly widow who had known sorrow, but an elderly widow who had not grown bitter. We see... Anna at the temple. Now, it tells us that Anna married at a young age. That's what virgin means. That can mean maiden or young woman. It means that she was young, that she'd never been married before when she married her husband, and she was only married to him seven years before he died, and she becomes a widow. And now she is 84 years old. She's elderly. Now, some of your notes in your Bible may say this, because some theologians believe that she was a widow for 84 years. So let's quickly just do the math. Say she was between 14 and 16, a young virgin when she got married. You add seven years to that. Let's say she was 16. You add seven, you get to 23, and then you add 84. She would have been 107 years old. Uh You know, that's possible, but for me, 84 years makes um, more sense. But truthfully, it doesn't really matter. Either way, she was elderly and she had been a widow for many, many years, Um, you know, well over 60 years. She had known sorrow and she had known hardship and she had known grief. And some of you in this room um, are widows. And you know what Anna felt. You know the grief and the loneliness and the hardship that she felt because it's hard for widows when they lose their spouse to become one and it's a separating of that and so that is very hard and in De- Anna's day without children it would have been really hard for her to support herself um, but we don't see her isolating herself from others she's at the temple we don't see herself living in the past it looks she's talking to others looking forward and she hasn't thrown an extended pity party instead Anna Anna wrapped herself around God. She waited on the Lord. She trusted in his goodness and provision. I think she knew the scriptures that talk about this, and I have a few on your verse sheet. I think she knew Psalm 147.3 where it says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Anna must have waited on the Lord to heal her broken heart. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. I think she um, trusted in God to be her protector. And then Jeremiah, Jeremiah 49.11 says, Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. I think Anna obeyed the word of God and trusted in the Lord. Now, the scripture says that she was at the temple, so day and night she 's always at the temple, so some theologians think that there might have been um, in the outer court some little rooms, and the priests would have stayed there, and she might have had one of those because she was a prophetess. Um, other theologians say no way that she lived in the uh, around the temple, but she just lived in Jerusalem close by and was always at the temple. but we know we see here when we read that that she was focusing on God, And I think maybe as she felt God's comfort in her life, she was offering comfort to others as the, she was in the temple day and night, offering comfort to them. Because we know 2 Corinthians 1, 3 tells us this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's one of the reasons God comforts us, so that we might reach out and comfort others. And I think that's possibly what Anna was doing as she was at the temple night and day. Now, you might not be a widow in this room, but I'm pretty sure that most of us, maybe all of us, have experienced some hardship in our lives, some sorrow, some difficult, life-changing situation. Hardship comes to all of us. And I read this quote by William Barclay. He's a Scottish theologian. I love the writings of, uh, that he writes about the New Testament. He says this, Sorrow makes us either hard, bitter, resentful, rebellious against God, Or it can make us kinder, softer, more sympathetic, and our faith grows deeper and stronger and more unshakable. That first way causes our faith to weaken and dwindle until pretty soon there's nothing left. The second way, when we're looking at God how He is, our faith grows deeper. So, how do we grow better instead of bitter when tragedy strikes? Well, We must focus on God as He truly is, as a loving, caring provider, instead of a harsh, distant tyrant. If we see God as hard and distant and uncaring, we grow bitter because that's not who God really is. We are not seeing him as he truly is, and so we grow bitter, and our faith dwindles. But when we look at God, who he is, we see him as the one who loves us and provides for us, and he has a purpose in our sorrow to bring us closer to him. Then our faith grows deeper, and we grow better. This is how Anna saw God Now, I was talking to my daughter-in-law a couple weeks ago, telling her this story about Anna, and I said, I really want to make her come alive for the women that come to hear this story. I want her um, to to be real. And so my daughter-in-law said, well, you should talk to your mom. Grandma's been a widow for a long time. Now, um, Erin loves my mom, and uh, she's right, because my mom, uh, my dad died when he, suddenly, when he was 47 years old, and my mom was 46, and so now she's 86, so she has been a widow for 40 years, and my mom is a lot like Anna. Um, She's known sorrow, she's known grief and loneliness, but she didn't grow bitter, By the way, my mom's name is Ann, so that's something. She didn't grow bitter because my mom had a strong faith before my dad died, and her faith only grew stronger and deeper and more unshakable after my dad died. You know, everyone... um, loves my mom. Those of you that are here that know my mom, love my mom. She didn't isolate herself from people. She loves people and they love her because she's kind, she's an encourager, she's a comforter, and she is a listener. She loves to serve people. She's always thinking of others before herself, whether it's family or community or her church. In fact, she's had so many different um, ministries in her church that I can't even keep up with it. She loves people. And next to her bed, she has her Bible and her devotionals, and she reads those every day and every, every morning and every night. And when my mom's away from home or out of town next to her bed, is her bible and her devotional wherever she is she knows god's word but she never beat us over the head with it growing up still she doesn't but everybody knows exactly what she thinks and so if you go to my mom with a problem she listens to you and if you ask her opinion then she will give you wise counsel from the scripture now i have a picture of my mom we can put it up there and um this is my mom. She's beautiful, and she? Um, she is unlike Anna in that she was married 27 years, and she had four kids. She has grandkids, and these are her four great-grandkids. My mom is a widow. She's a woman who waits on the Lord. She truly believes that the best is yet to come. So I hope maybe that makes Anna seem a little more alive to you. But let's go on and um, finish reading verse 37. It says here, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna was a widow who worshiped God night and day. She worshiped God with fasting and prayers. So the fasting tells us that she was devoted to God. She was devoted to him. And the prayers tell us that she talked to God and listened to God. She had conversations with God. I found uh, a definition of worship that I liked. It says, Worship is expressing in words, music, rituals, and in silent adoration his greatness and beauty and goodness, the goodness of God. And worship is also adoring God and giving him glory for all he is and all he has done, to delight and revel in him and to express to him the love that swells within us that's worship. Day and night, Anna is giving God glory. She's expressing her love for him. She was in God's house with God's people, and that is a good place to be. Anna was worshiping with others during those common prayer times, and she also worshiped him and prayed to him when she was alone. Anna worshiped God with her heartfelt prayers, and I wonder, what did Anna talk to God about? You know, maybe she thanked him for the goodness um, that he had shown in her life. Maybe she had requests for him. Maybe she quoted Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah and asked God, send him now. Send him now, Lord. She must have prayed for Israel, God's people. Um, This was a very spiritually low time for the nation Israel, when Anna was around, because this they were under Roman rule, and many of the religious uh, Jewish leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they um, were far, far from the heart of God. They were all about meaningless ritual. They had no relationship, and so many of the people, most of the people, followed after them. They did not have a relationship with God, and yet. There is always a believing remnant who knows God and believes God and follows him. And Anna was one of those. She was part of that believing remnant, believing in God's goodness, waiting on the coming Redeemer and worshiping God, day and night, worshiping God. So where and when do you worship God? Where and when do you pour out your love and your adoration for him? Now, all of us in the room could answer that in a different way. So maybe we would say that we worship God all the time and anywhere. Anywhere. Certainly, I worship God at Christ Chapel on Sundays when I come, uh, and I worship him through music and prayer and listening to his word. We worship God tonight when we lifted up those praises to him. We were worshiping the Lord. I worship the Lord when I'm sitting on my couch and I see the pictures of my family. And I am overwhelmed with God's goodness that he pours down on me and on on all of us. I worship God when I'm sitting in my backyard looking at my flower garden or sitting on my swing and watching the sunrise or the sunset. Okay. It's mostly the sunset, but when I'm there and I see God's creation, I am overwhelmed with worship and love and adoration for what he has created. Maybe for you, it's when you're in your car and a song comes on and it touches your heart and you are filled with love and adoration for God. You revel in him as love for him overflows from your heart maybe you worship him in the midst of helping someone who is struggling or in need and you see in their face the face of jesus maybe you're worshiping god when you see someone baptized or you take the lord's supper and you contemplate what jesus did for you it says anna worshiped god day and night and we too can worship god all the time and anywhere So now we come to the third and final verse, but first I want to talk about what's going on the reason that Luke has put Anna in chapter 2. So far, he's given us all these details in these first two verses, but this third verse, he's going to tell us why he's talking about Anna. So we're going to go back and talk a little bit about some of the stuff you had in your discussion time. Now, chapter 2 of Luke, we all know that begins with the birth of Jesus. We love that story. We read it at Christmas, and you know it well. Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem, and baby Jesus is born in a stable, and out in the field or the shepherds and the angel comes and says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then all the angels start singing praises to God. And so the shepherds jump up and they run into Bethlehem and they find baby Jesus and they tell Mary and Joseph everything the um, angel said to them. And then you looked at verse 21 that says on when, Jesus was eight days old. He was circumcised, and they named him Jesus, just as the angel had told Joseph to do. And this is a lot like what Lynn told us last week with John the Baptist. He was circumcised on day eight and was given the name John, as the angel had said. Now, circumcision was very important to them. Um, It was very important because it was a commandment from God, and it was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and the nation Israel. And then we read in verse 22 this. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And I have a picture um, of the temple. Mary and Joseph would have brought baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, which is about six miles from Bethlehem. And you see in this picture, um, all around the outer part is the outer Uh, court and the Gentiles anyone could be there and then there's steps and I'm sorry that we can't see them but there's many steps that go up to this inner court that says the um court of women and that's where the women um could hang out probably where Anna was and then you go up some more steps and into where the priest would have been to offer your sacrifice and that's where Mary and Joseph were headed and it tells us here that um When the time came for their purification, they took him to Jerusalem, and as it's written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we see Mary and Joseph, very godly, wanting to keep the commandments. And so two things are happening here. The time of purification was 40 days after the birth of a male child. And according to the custom and the Mosaic law, they would bring a sacrifice. Also, the second thing that's happening is this um, dedicating to the Lord this firstborn male that's called holy to the Lord, and probably there would have been a sacrifice involved there. And this we learned about when we studied Exodus last semester. This was a law that God put into place to help them remember the Exodus. Because as you remember, um, God caused the death of the firstborn Egyptians so that Pharaoh would finally let God's people go. And um, the Israelite firstborn males, they were saved because they had the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And so all these years have passed, um, centuries actually, and they're still doing this law. So that's what Mary and Joseph are doing as they bring the baby Jesus. He's 40 days old to this place. And then in 25, we read this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that phrase, the consolation of Israel, comes from the Old Testament in Isaiah, and it means, it's a reference to the Messiah. It means the one who would come and comfort and help Israel. And it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ now that word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah so Simeon has been um, told through the Holy Spirit that he's going to see the Messiah and so he's at the temple and he's looking for him and he recognizes that this baby Jesus is is the Messiah. And it says he takes him and he holds him up and he blesses God. He's so grateful that he has seen the Messiah. And he says um, this blessing, and I want to start reading in verse 30. Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, the amazing thing about what Simeon said is right there in verse 32. The amazing thing for us, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus came not just to save the Israelites, the Jews. He also came to save the Gentiles. I think. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. Jesus came as the Savior for the whole world. And it says here that Mary and Joseph marveled when Simeon said this. And so he hands the baby Jesus back to Mary, and she takes him, and then Simeon tells her this hard truth. It's not going to be easy for Jesus. Many will oppose him. And he says, and it will be like a a sword piercing your soul, Mary. And who walks up? At this very moment. And I think maybe in the court of women, there was Anna. And she looks out and she sees this couple coming with this baby. And I think her heart is stirred. And I think somehow she knows. Maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe she has this... That is the Messiah. And so she begins to follow them. And she slowly makes her way towards them and up the steps. And as Simeon hands them back, verse 38 says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Who comes up at that very moment? Anna. Anna. Anna, the widow who's at the temple worshiping God, waiting for the Messiah as she is wrapped around the Lord. And here he is. And Anna recognized him and she, it says, began to give thanks to God. Now, the Greek word there for thanks can mean to respond in praise. She recognized Jesus, the Messiah, and she responded in praise. So why is praise important for us today? Because it is important. One time I read that praise is pure prayer, and I love that. I've thought about it a lot. It's pure because you are focusing on God alone when you praise him. You're focusing on who he is, his divine nature, his attributes. You're focusing on the marvelous works that he has done, creation and redemption, salvation When we praise God, it expands our awareness of who he is. He becomes bigger, and we become smaller. He's even bigger than we think, even when we're praising him. God is big, and we are small, and that's good because we're humbled, and that's a place of humility, and that's how it should be because he is the Savior, and we are the ones that he saves, the one he loves. Praise causes our hearts to focus on God, and it takes our mind off our problems, our shortcomings, our failings. As God becomes bigger, our problems become smaller. Praise takes our perspective from the earthly to the heavenly. It takes our perspective from the temporary to the eternal to the eternal. David knew this in Psalm 9, 1 and 2. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then the psalmist in 146 says, praise the Lord. And that phrase in Hebrew is hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Praise causes us to focus on God alone, and it gives us an eternal perspective. A dear friend um, gave me this statue for my birthday, and you can see it. I have a picture of it that we can put up, but she's obviously kneeling, looking up, to God, and I don't know if she's listening or if she's calling out to him in confession or sorrow or uh, maybe a request, but while I've been studying Anna, I've had her right in front of me as I've been looking at Anna, and I see a woman that is praising God with her whole heart, and I want to be that woman the last thing we see in verse um, 38 um, about Anna is that she was a witness who told everyone about Jesus. The phrase there, the redemption of Jerusalem, that kind of parallels Simeon's phrase, the consolation of Israel, um, it's a reference to the Messiah. Um, it means the one that God would send to deliver or to redeem Israel. Israel. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city and represents Israel, and it's also where the temple was located, and Jerusalem is sometimes called Zion or the God's holy city. And it says here that Anna tells everyone the Messiah has come, an elderly widow woman. She waited on the Lord, wrapped around God, She knew the prophecies in God's word. She knew the best was yet to come. And here at age 84 is her crowning moment. She sees Jesus, the Savior, and you get the feeling that she must tell the others. This news is too amazing and too exciting for her to keep to herself. Now, all Jews would have known that God had promised to send a Redeemer, a Savior, to Israel. But very few were looking for him because of this low spiritual condition. And even fewer would recognize him and accept him. But there's always that godly remnant that would have rejoiced and believed Anna's words that the Savior has come. I read one quote that talked about witnessing, and it said this. I kind of liked it. Witnessing is taking a good look at the Lord Jesus Christ and then telling others what you have seen. That is what Anna did. So how does knowing Jesus affect your life? How does having a relationship with Jesus affect your attitude, your actions? What difference does he make? Now, that's a question that each one of us has to answer individually. But I think Anna gives us many great examples, many great applications for our walk and our relationship with the Lord. Each one of us may go out of here tonight taking something different um, with us that we've learned from Anna tonight. Maybe it's reading and knowing God's word so that you have hope that you can believe the best is yet to come. Or maybe it's focusing on God as a loving, caring provider in times of hardship so you grow better and not bitter. Or maybe it's expressing to God words and songs and actions of love and adoration, worshiping him more often, loving God most. And um, what's the other part of that? Loving God most and putting God first. Thank you. Worship Him more, putting God first. Maybe it's praising God for who He is and for what He's done. Um, More often throughout your day, looking for those ways to praise God. Or maybe it's taking a good look at Jesus and telling someone what you see. Ladies, let's wait on the Lord. Wrap yourself around Jesus and let Him give you strength and love and purpose as he did for Anna. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are are a good God. You are gracious and loving. That's who you are, and we are so grateful for that, Father. Sometimes we forget it in the midst of our struggle. Father, remind us of who you are. Lord, I just pray that we would draw closer to you, wrap ourselves around you. Father, that you would bring um, the story of Anna to our mind this week, that we might look to you um, in faith and believe and hope. And, Father, that we would praise you, worship you, draw close to you. Lord, bless these women in this room. Bless them. I pray that you would draw each one of them near to you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.